We have good qualities right. and we have weaknesses and challenges. So compassion is really about just this inward journey of how can I toward myself be my best self? Not because I have to be, just because I care. Except another term I talk about a lot in the book is the compassionate mess, right? The goal of practice is simply to be right. a compassionate mess. You're always going to be a mess. You, you do your best, you try, you know, you go to therapy or you do whatever you need to do to try to be as functional as you can, but you'll still be a mess. We'll all be a mess. When we're, we'll really be a mess when we're, when we're old because our bodies will be a mess. If our goal is just to be a compassionate mess, or our goal is simply to hold the whole messiness of human life with warmth, with love, with connectedness, with presence, with joy, then mm. you've achieved your goal. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey everyone, this is Ann. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to do a huge thank you to all of our hosts and listeners out there who attended our meetups a couple of weeks ago on April 22nd, 2022. We had a live gathering in Austin, Texas, and all over the world, everywhere from LA to New Zealand, lots of places in between. And you know what? It was spectacular. I cannot tell you how much fun it was to meet the people in Austin, Texas that came what a great group. And to meet all the hosts out there, the only disappointment is that Sue and I couldn't beat at every meetup because I would have loved to have done that. But we were able to meet with hosts and hear about all the experiences. And I can tell you the one consistent feedback that we got that was exciting, that was also our experience in Austin, is how easy it was to connect. These are perfect strangers, for the most part, coming together with really the only one thing that they absolutely knew they had in common, and that was that they listened to Therapists Uncensored, which means they're interested in things like modern attachment, interpersonal neurobiology, getting off autopilot, learning about your defenses, and being out there in the world. And so getting together, people had immediate kinds of connections. That was a consistent report. And that's why Sue and I wanted to do this. One of our endeavors out in Therapist Uncensored is to build community, and we wanted to create an opportunity to continue to do that in each individual community out there. So again, big shout out of thank you for all of those hosts and all of those that took time out of their day to come and attend. Thank you so much. Our guest today, Dr. Kristen Neff, she's an associate professor at the University of Texas. She was at the program that I graduated and got my PhD from. Anyway, she's been on the show before, way back in 2017, so she was in the first years of our podcasting, and we decided to have her back on because her research is up to date and her writing is really focused on a topic that is true to our Sue and I's heart and has grown even more deeply important in our current culture. So Dr. Chris Neff is the expert on self-compassion. And she brings to life what compassion really is, inner compassion. It is not just being soft on the self. It is about harnessing your authentic, true self with courageousness and care. So her new book, entitled Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. That title really says it all, doesn't it? It's super important. This is not just a podcast for women. Absolutely not. In fact, 
men can gain so much. As she is talking about tuning into the tender self to more deeply and powerfully connect to others. So it's also about learning just to how to turn down that highly critical voice that's inside so many of us that's either directed at ourselves or tends to be directed at others and learning to turn that down and gain a powerful way to connect to self and to find voices and to really act in a way that is powerful and intentional. So I really loved, I know I say that, but I guess I love our guests, but I really love this conversation and I think you will too. So Kristen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Anne. We got to talk a few years ago, and it was an incredibly enlightening conversation about self-compassion in general. And I loved it. And I see that you've turned a little bit of your focus towards women. Could you tell us a little bit about why? Yeah. yeah my new book is called Fierce Self-Compassion for Women. And that's basically because what I found more and more in my research and teaching is that gender really plays a role in people's ability to give themselves compassion. So believe it or not, even though compassion is part of the female gender role, for that reason, only 15% of any audience I teach to comes to my workshops because compassion is a female thing. Ironically, women have slightly lower compassion levels than men because we're raised, socialized to give compassion to others, but to be self-sacrificing. We feel less entitled to meet our own needs than men do. (laughs) So that's one area. My latest work talks about fierce and tender self-compassion. They're both self-compassion, but like that nurturing, caring energy can sometimes be gentle and tender, which is what we tend to think of, like maybe a mother with her child, that type of compassion, but it can also be fierce, like a mama bear, you know, protecting yourself, standing up for yourself, speaking up, making change, taking action to help yourself, you know, be well. What I've also found as a woman (laughs) is that there's real gender role socialization in that women are allowed to be tender toward others, not themselves, but they aren't allowed to be fierce. God forbid a woman gets angry, for instance, or is too agentic or too successful. We have names for women who are too agentic or out there, outgoing, right? Forceful, powerful. Men are also harmed, by the way. It's not a one-way street. Men are harmed by their inability to be tender. There's a reason why so few men show up to my workshops, even though the research shows self-compassion is amazingly good for well-being, mental health, emotional well-being, but they aren't allowed to be tender and soft. They're allowed to be fierce and angry and agentic, but they aren't allowed to be soft. So the reason I'm focusing more on gender is because, I mean, even though everyone needs self-compassion, everyone needs a balance of fierce and tender. I mean, it's like yin and yang, right? Yin and yang. We need both energies to be whole and complete. But gender role socialization, I think, has really done a number on us in so many ways, including power, inequality, sexual harassment. The list goes on and on. But one of the ways it harms everyone is by restricting our ability to be our full, true, authentic selves. And that's why I wrote the book for women, um, partly because I am a woman, partly kind of as a response to the Me Too movement, which I see as an uprising of women's self-compassion. We're rising up and saying, no more. You aren't going to harm us anymore. Uh Uh-uh, we're done. That's an incredibly brave act of self-compassion, just because it would have been too complicated to say, well, for men, it works this way. And for women, it works that way. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of times, I guess we think about self-compassion as just 
the idea of being kind to yourself. But when you're talking about fierce self-compassion in the Me Too movement, being kind to yourself is also having agency and speaking up, having boundaries and having limits. It's not just being the kind side of self-compassion. Think of a mother. I mean, is a mother being kind if she like, you know, protects her child from some stranger? I mean, good point. A, a firefighter, when a firefighter jumps into a burning building, that's an act of kindness, an act of compassion. It's just we, we only tend to think of the tender acceptance when we hear right. words of compassion. But actually, if you think of fierce mama bear, and by the way, that is the one area where women are allowed to be fierce when protecting their children. <laughs> that's when we, where we accept it. But other realms, not so much. And that's for everyone because everyone, they think it's just about going easy on yourself, giving yourself a break. Well, sometimes if that's what you need to alleviate your suffering, it's going easy on yourself, giving yourself a break. Sometimes what you need is to get off, off your butt and do something different or, you know, stand up for yourself or speak up or rock the boat. That's also re- equally important form of healing. And so it's really just mm-hmm. trying to correct that misperception people have about what compassion is. Why do you think women reach out to go to these self-compassion workshops? Do you think that they recognize that they're struggling like with maybe a high amount of self-criticism or pressure? What do you see as the biggest motivation? I think women, partly because of where we're raised, we know the value of compassion, right? We've seen it. We've seen how compassion heals. We understand that compassion is a good thing, that it's powerful, that if you are hurting it, compassion has healing power. I think women just are more open to the idea of it than men are, because again, men, it's like, oh, that's a, a girl thing. It's, it's crazy, but you know, some, some weird logic goes on like that in men's heads, but it's not just the compassion. It's also the self. I mean, any sort of help, self-help workshop, you're going to get more women than men in general, right. because that's also, you know, psychology, more women go to see therapists, et cetera, et cetera. So it's more than just compassion, but the compassion makes it worse. But I think women are, um, because of the way we're raised to be fairly self-aware and right, we understand we're we're more willing to acknowledge when we're hurting and we know the power of self-compassion. And most women, when I tell them about self-compassion, the common reaction of women is like, wow, I need some of that. (laughs) It's almost like the idea makes sense. We just haven't been socialized to do it. Sue and I just did a whole episode on self-criticism. You could say you know, you need to be more self-compassion, more integrating of flaws, but it's not always easy to apply, is it? No. And and the main reason is, is I think it's built into our physiology. So what happens mm. when we feel inadequate or we make a mistake or, you know, we feel unworthy or, or even just when something difficult happens, we go into threat defense mode, fight, flight, or freeze, you know, freak out mode, <laughs> to use a colloquial right. term, right? And by the way, when your friend makes the mistake or is hurting, you aren't personally threatened. So you can access things that are also part of our evolution, like the care response, right? We evolved a care response, but it primarily was evolved to care for others, for infants, for other group members. The fight, flight, or freeze response was more the evolved response to personal threat. So self-criticism is fighting ourselves, right? Or we flee into shame, like we hang our heads against perceived judgments of others, we flee, we withdraw, or we freeze, we get stuck, we ruminate. This is all very natural reaction, you know, it's associated with sympathetic nervous system arousal, all of that. So that's partly why it's challenging. It's not hard. We know how to do it. It's actually a lot easier than meditation, for instance. Meditation is difficult. You've got to learn how to work with the default mode network. The brain wants to wander. It takes time and training. 
self-compassion is actually easier. All you got to do is put your hand on your heart and say, oh, wow, this is so hard. You know, right. what do I need right now? So it's actually not hard to do, but it is hard to remember to do it because it's not instinctual. That's the thing. Oh, that makes sense. I love how you're bringing it back to the sympathetic nervous system in that context, because it makes sense why it's so hard. And just as you say it, you know, the, the fight or flight and our body is completely activated in a defense mode. You can't see, Kristen, she's put her hand on her chest as she's speaking when she goes, oh, this is really hard. And just as you're doing that, you're bringing your mind much more into a social caring place, right? Which we only really have access to when we get a little out of threat. So activating a different part of your nervous system, if you will. And the research shows that, right? It reduces cortisol, increases heart rate variability, for instance. So it activates parasympathetic, deactivates sympathetic reactions. If I'm hearing you accurately, part of it is you're becoming aware of self, right? If you're in fight or flight, you're very much activated by what's happening in threat outside of you, or of course the shame inside of you, which is again, a threat. So if you are slowing down and even being aware of self already activates a different part. So it sounds like the biggest act of self-compassion is aware of yourself, but also your voice is like the aware of pain in a way, isn't it? In my model, I've got three components. So the first is mindfulness, which is the awareness. The willingness to turn toward and be aware of pain. You know, often we don't want to go there. We want to drown our sorrows and on a bag of cookies, or you know, we want to fight it. We just can't accept the fact that this is really hard. So the ability just to acknowledge and make some space for the fact that why well, I'm really hurting, that's a mindfulness, mm-hmm. that's huge. And also give a little perspective, right? So ironically, because we're used to giving care to others, when we turn to ourselves and say, wow, you're really hurting. We're kind of doing some perspective taking, which gives us some distance from our pain, which helps. We have a little more distance, a little more space, a little more awareness of what's going on. So I wouldn't say it's the most important thing, but it really is the first step. Without mindfulness of pain, we can't, we can't do anything. We have no place from which to launch a self-compassionate response. But the other two components are equally important, right? So um, one is kindness that we've talked about. That's the warmth. So for instance, we've had lots of long-term mindfulness teachers take our course and say, wow, you know, I'm very mindful. I can hold my pain and, you know, spacious awareness and even be warm toward myself. But putting my hand on my heart and saying, I'm so sorry, you're you're hurting, darling. You know, I care about you. It just shifts things. And partly Mm -hmm. that is because you're intentionally kind of more powerfully activating the sympathetic nervous system response, the care response. I mean, sometimes it happens naturally, but when you do it intentionally, it really strengthens the response. And then last but not least, other people, a sense of connectedness. That's one of the most powerful things about compassion. You know, and like self-pity, which is not actually healthy, feeling sorry for yourself. Normally when we're hurting, we exacerbate that hurt by feeling you know, it's just me, everyone else in the world living a perfectly normal, you know, problem-free life. And it's just me who's feeling humiliated or is having this problem or whatever. And then, of course, you know, when we feel isolated for human beings because we're social animals, it makes us feel much more threatened. And so sense. when you remember, oh, it's not just me. This is part of being human. You know, this is actually to be expected. I think it's wrong with me for having something like this happen. I'm not the only one. It's not just me. And that actually helps us feel empowered because we feel less alone and we feel more connected. So I think I came up with a good model 20 years ago because <laughs> it seems to work. 
It's like baking a loaf of bread. You need one part mindfulness, one part common humanity, one part kindness, and then you can bake your goods, you know? <laughs> There's a way that it makes it sound so easy. And like you said, it really is, and yet it isn't. But if you keep a model, and because if we talk about self-compassion just in general as a concept, I guess it can lead you, I guess you could be even at risk a little bit of being self-critical. Oh, I can't be kind to myself. I can't get rid of these critical comments in my head exactly. over and over and over again. Yeah. Well, yeah. So the minds, so I'll say, don't beat yourself up for beating yourself up. That's why we have to have compassion for our tendency to be self-critical because it's just a safety response. We feel threatened. We're, we're trying to survive. We're trying to be you know, safe. So right. we're going to fight, fight or flees. We, we, you know, people really think when they beat themselves up, they're helping. I mean, not really logically, but it, it, emotionally, they're either helping by uh, maybe they'll correct themselves so they won't make that mistake again. Or maybe, if, you know, it won't hurt so bad when others criticize them if they do it first. Or maybe it's like almost like a submissive behavior. Maybe in their past, they were taught that if they're self-critical, other people calm down and maybe we're angry with them, parents or, you know, other caregivers. So, you know, it's very natural that we do it. We shouldn't judge yourself for it. It's just right. not very effective. <laughs> right. So it's a natural, sometimes a natural first step, especially based on your history. If you were raised with a lot of criticism around you. Or, or if you have a very, like my son, for instance, is very self-critical. He obviously was never criticized, but he's got an autism. And he's got a lot of anxiety. So people whose nervous systems are really highly, they go into fight, flight, or freeze very easily, which he does very <sighs> act, activated very easily. It's just this kind of natural response. Good reminder. This is all not just nurture. It's it not, is, yeah, it's not some, just parents. Yes, there's a lot of, just, you know, it's right. just physiology and evolution and the way we're wired. And some people are wired differently than others. And, you know, we don't control it. Once you say you're just trying to be safe, then already you're softening and warming up a little bit. And then it's that warmth that really changes the tenor of the relationship with yourself, which really. I mean, the research is just phenomenal in terms of how much it helps. It helps you be less overwhelmed by the negative emotions. You're more able to cope. You're more resilient. Can you talk any more about the other kinds of research? There's almost 4,000 studies now, Anne. Okay. Several studies come out every single day. I can't even keep up with the literature. It's phenomenal. If you go to my website, wow. I have a graduate student who twice a year updates it. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep it up anymore. It's organized by category. Wow. There's thousands of studies now. So just resilience, I'm just an example. There's a lot of research on veterans who came back from either Iraq or Afghanistan. And what we found is the ones who had actually seen action, who had combat exposure, those who were more compassionate, they were less likely to develop post-traumatic stress syndrome. They were less likely to turn to drugs or alcohol or even contemplate suicide as a way to deal with all their pain. They're more able to function in daily life, more able to actually grow from the experience. A lot of research on COVID, people who have more self-compassion through this COVID experience have been more resilient. So I conceptualize compassion. It's kind of like a continuum. On one end, you're self-critical, really harsh on yourself. On the other end, you're self-compassionate. So any movement toward compassion is the movement away from self-criticism. The one way it works is just by lessening the self-criticism, that in and of itself. And it's, it's the self-criticism that's really feeding the depression, the anxiety, the shame, et cetera. So that in and of itself helps, right? You aren't feeding the, the negative spiral, but also the positive emotions of kindness, caring, and warmth. There's so much work on positive psychology that it kind of broadened and build, like you're able to see more opportunities. You aren't so narrowly focused on the negative when you add in the positive emotions. 
which allows you to look at, oh, maybe there's that option. I hadn't thought of it before. You know, when I'm in my black hole, I can't think of my options. Once you get those positive emotions going, connectedness, presence, kindness, then you can look at your opportunities. And that also helps you cope that way. It enhances relationships with others because believe it or not, even though the word self is in there, you're a lot less self-focused when you're self-compassionate compared to when you're (laughs) self-critical. When you're so critical, all you're thinking of is you. I'm so worthless. And by the way, it's it's not really self-compassion. It's like human compassion. And you're just including yourself in the circle. So it actually decreases the focus on the self, ironically, but it does, which means you have more resources to give to others. And it reduces things like burnout. And, you know, it allows you to sustain more healthier relationships with others good for physical health, helps you sleep better. And when I stop to think about it from just as we kind of go through the three steps one more time, because I love your three-step model. I use it. I've used it since you and I have spoken several years ago. I think of you often. So what I'm hearing is the first step in it is mindfulness. It's awareness of self, awareness of others, but it's awareness of, ah, this is hard. You would think we'd be aware of pain, but we either we're still yeah. lost in it, we, have no, we can't see it, or we're trying to like just shove it down. And even though it's right, to avoid us, it. we're trying to just kind of, you know, get through it. So yeah, this is hard. Just simple saying, this is really hard. It, it's huge when you make that shift instead of being well, lost in it. Now you're, you're naming it. You've got some space around it. It actually changes your brain when you name the difficult emotion you're feeling. So you can be specific, but you don't have to be. You, you can say, I'm sad or I'm horrific. You can say, this is hard. It doesn't even matter. You're naming the pain. And then remembering that you aren't alone. It's not just me. So you're embarrassed. Like if you can say I'm embarrassed or I did something stupid. Oh, this is painful. The idea of mindfully being aware of pain and feeling it. You're right. We we think it's so easy to feel pain. But I think especially in our Western world, we think we've sort of been trained that we shouldn't feel discomfort. So when we feel it, we move so much into autopilot, don't we, to get away from that one moment. And that's also natural, right? So even an amoeba will move away from a toxin in a Petri dish, right? This is like the fundamental thing of life is when there's something negative, we move away from it. So again, we don't want to blame ourselves for that. That's also part of life. But unfortunately, what we know is that sometimes it works. If you can move away from something negative, great. That's wonderful. But if it's the thought and emotion and it's here, if it's here, it's here. And if you're fighting it and resisting it when it's here, you, I mean, obviously you do what you can to help in the future. But right now, this is how it is. So fighting, you know, banging your head against reality is just going to make it hurt more, you know. Oh, so yeah, that yeah. the mindfulness really is key. I mean, all of it would fall apart, I think, without mindfulness. Mindfulness, this hurts, but the kindness to self, there's an endurance to that, isn't there? There's like, ah, that really hurt. That's really hard. That's really embarrassing. That's okay. That's hard for you to deal with. Yeah. It's it's just like you would say to your friend, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, (laughs) just the slight, the change in the, that's kind of more the tender, the, oh, this is really hard. But if it's aimed outward, so if you're Mm -hmm. having compassion because you're being threatened, it's like, no, this is not okay. That's also mindfulness. I love that. Standing up for yourself is also that kindness. You talk about self-compassion and both being tender and fierce and holding. And so if the first part is still recognizing yourself, like that's not okay with me, that hurt, 
then the second part yeah. could be externalizing. You stop. It's, it's an ability then to have a voice. Yes. And, and women often struggle with that part, don't they? Well, absolutely. They oh, do. Us. We're, we're yes. socialized not to. Yeah. Or those mm-hmm. of us who naturally aren't don't have a problem with it, we aren't liked because of it. So it's like, you know, pick your poison, right? Right. I, I have no problem being fierce, but it doesn't go over so well all the time. You know, so you need a lot mm-hmm. of self-compassion just to be your authentic self. In your book, you speak about the differences in our culture. You even talk about some research about how anger is experienced in men versus women and how that can add to difficulty with women really feeling that no, that limit setting, that fierce kind of self-compassion. Yeah. So there may be some biological component. It's hard to say. I mean, testosterone levels may be playing some little role, but the vast majority appears to be socialization. So for instance, if a little girl is angry, the parents will often interpret it as her being upset or sad. It's almost like mm-hmm. they don't, they don't like little girls to be angry. They don't really validate her anger. They don't tell her it's okay to be angry. Whereas boys, right. they don't want her to be too angry, but it's like, yeah, you go, you know, it's kind of like, okay. And so what happens is, especially as women grow up, we feel like it's something that's taken over me. It's not, I'm not an angry person. And then when we do get angry, because we don't accept it as part of ourselves, we don't own it. It feels like this alien force has taken over our body and like, you know, it's like alien invasion. Then we explode and like, oh my God, what happened? There's also a reason we we tend to reject our anger is because other people reject our anger. A man who gets angry, if he has an opinion, he gets angry. People are more likely to believe an angry man who's expressing this you know, I talk about Brett Kavanaugh, someone like that. If a man's angry, they think he's passionate. He really, really, they're more likely to be persuaded. If a woman is angry, they think she's crazy. She's crazy. She's angry. You know, actually in your book, you talk about, I don't Uh want to put you on the spot. You talk about the research where you had one dissenting vote. Can you talk about that? Because I thought that was really Yeah, yeah. If if I remember, I mean, it's been a while ago, but yeah, I think, uh, so they had a mock jury trial. So let's say there were 12 jurors and one person spoke up and kind of was angry and just really disagreed with it. No, no, this, and this is wrong, you know, whatever, or this person did it or whatever it was. If it was a man, the other jurors were more likely to believe him if he was angry. If it was a woman, they were less likely to believe her or be swayed by her if she was angry. So the only thing yeah. that changed is the gender. Yeah. I mean, these are just like just written scenarios. So the only thing is the name. Same thing like, so like competence is all, it's terrible. It's really depressing. A really competent woman got A pluses on all performance about incredibly successful. How much do you think you would like this woman? You know, general personality profile. Women especially are less likely to like a competent woman. Than a, That's they're more likely like a competent man they're less likely to like a competent woman because we assume if a woman's competent or agentic or forceful, she must be unnurturing. You're either uh-huh. competent or nurturing. Men are competent, women are nurturing. Men are agentic, they're go-getters. Women are soft and tender, they take care of the kids. These gender roles have barely budged in 30 years. I think we're more open to people not conforming with gender roles, but the gender roles are the gender roles. We know which one goes with which gender, right? (laughs) When you speak of the yin and the yang, it's like if a woman is holding on to their fierce agentic component, they must have let go of their nurturing selves. It's it's kind of our assumptions that we're making. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's partly why men as well can't be tender 
because if he's tender, well, then he can't be fierce and strong and he's not going to protect me or go to war or whatever we need our men to do, right, historically. And if you think about it, that means that we're all, culture is trying to make us all mentally ill because we need yin and yang. We need both. If you're too tender and not fierce enough, you're going to be complacent. You're going to be run over. But if you're right. too fierce without being tender, you're going to be aggressive and start causing harm. And that doesn't look at our world in many ways because it's been run by men who weren't allowed to be tender. Look at the world. You know, that's partly, I think, why we are in the pickle we're in. Everyone needs both energies. And, and everyone's mm-hmm. going to express them in their own unique way. It's not like we're all going to be exactly the same within genders, right. across genders, you know, gender identity, another thing, you know, sexual, all these things, every single person has their own balance that is going to express it in their unique way, but they need to be allowed and encouraged to be balanced and have both. We're almost like culturally, it's like we want these little caricature cutouts of people that, that aren't you know, integrated, right? Aren't because inter- what you're saying, well, the it's only not way you can get integrated is it's the Cinderella and Prince Charming story. Heterosexism, you need a man and a woman to be complete. And the woman is plays a nurturing role, the man's a fierceness. And then when they're together, they're complete in their whole. And maybe that worked out for a few people, but not for most of us, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's also incredibly limiting as well. I think it's, so. it really is because then you have, I, I, I know that some women really struggle, and I think men too, but some women really struggle with the thought of losing that agentic role in their husband or their spouse if they're heterosexual or even if they're gay and one individual is playing more of that agentic that role. also happens by the people kind of tend to play one more one role as, as well it seems to be we like the bipolarity i guess or something yeah yeah i see two things and see if that this is consistent with what you've seen one is the fear of taking on the competent agentic place and then somehow that's questioning their more mothering feminine side and just their fear that they can't sort of really believing in that I'm not the one that is that forceful agentic individual if you will and then there's this other effect that I think the fear that if they take the more agentic role that the men in their life might feel threatened by that like they're somehow losing their role in this sort of divided role I hate to say based on my relationships there's some truth to that (laughs) a lot of men do feel threatened by it you know I think it's just good to be aware of all this. You know, it's not like if people want to role specialize in their relationships, that that's fine, but it should be authentic. It should be based on what is true for people, what they want works, works for them, not what we think we're supposed to do to be worthy people. I really think if we're going to get beyond patriarchy and look at our world, I mean, this is largely a, a result of patriarchy, right? Unbridled consumption of goods of people and just so out of whack. If we're going to get beyond patriarchy, we're all going to have to learn to balance yin and yang, masculine and feminine, whatever tender, fierce, whatever word you put on it. If we're going to be healthy and be able to be sustainable, and we're going to have to figure out new ways of doing relationship. Unfortunately, the truth is, I know, so I'm a middle-aged woman and I have a lot of women, friends who are my age. It is hard. It's, it's harder to find relationships because I'm not going to settle. I'm not going to play that role. Forget that. And if I can't find a man, well then, you know, then I'm alone. It seems to be that the ones who are balanced are all taken, you know, this is something a lot of women are really facing. And, you know, and I talk about this in my book, 
would I like to have a good relationship? Of course I would, but I'm not going to let my happiness depend on it. So in the past, a woman's value is dependent on having that good relationship. You know, our worth comes from having a man, you know, for heterosexual, at least having someone else adore us and love us. And that's where we get our worth. That's where we get our status. This is in our DNA as women. I mean, in the past, we were up the creek without a paddle if we didn't have a man to take care of us. We couldn't own Mm -hmm. things. We needed a man to protect us. We had no social status without a man. And so our value really was determined by our mate. And luckily Mm -hmm. now, at least in the West, there's so many more options. I mean, look at me, I'm successful. I've got money, I've got a career. I don't need that for status or anything like that. I'm through it now, but I went through a time when I, I just wasn't finding the relationship that, that worked out, it's like, you really have to look at those feelings of, it doesn't mean I'm any less worthy. A man would, a man would not have that thought. A man might be lonely. A man may right. want a relationship, but he's not going to feel he's less worthy because he doesn't have one. Right. But Where we are woman, very socialized. Runs very deep mm-hmm. that you're worth right. someone like Beyonce. I mean, she's got everything. Right. But she right. still needs to have a man, you know what I mean? It's like, this is, and I think it's, it's, I've really tried to look at it as an opportunity to question all that. Is that really the case? Am I going to let my happiness depend on that? No, I'm not. As a matter of fact, there's many other right. sources of happiness, including for me, more spiritual happiness. You know, the, the bigger mm-hmm. one is not the little oneness of a Prince Charming Cinderella, which we all want. We all want that intimacy because it feels like, that oneness, that merging. Well, the oneness and merging, the real oneness and merging is not about two people. It's about, you know, kind of getting beyond the idea of separate self. And, you know, if you take it in the spiritual level, that's really what we're yearning for. And from my point of view, at least what I'm yearning for is that larger sense of union and merging. But it took some work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> gotta say, we all have to feel special and above average right? But none right. of us feels good enough. So even though we all need to feel special and above average, and we like to like put others down in comparison to ourselves, we're also really afraid of appreciating ourselves because it's lonely at the top. I mean, it's really, it's not very healthy if you start looking at all these models we have. We're afraid right. of shining. We're afraid of reaching our full potential at the same time that we're terrified of not being above average and special, you know? So we're just very conflicted about it. And so the nice thing about self-compassion is you don't have to compare yourself to anyone, whether you're better than them, whether you're worse than them, it doesn't matter. We are all not only flawed human beings, we're also all glorious human beings. I mean, everyone has wonderful strengths and gifts as well as challenges. That is just the human condition. They're probably not totally equally assigned. And I'm not saying all people are the same, but that is the truth of being human. We have good qualities and we have weaknesses and challenges. So compassion is really about just this inward journey of how can I toward myself be my best self? Not because I have to be just because I care, except another term I talk about a lot in the book is the compassionate mess, right? The goal of practice is simply to be a compassionate mess. You're always going to be a mess. You, You do your best, you try, you know, you, go to therapy or do whatever you need to do to try to be as functional as you can, but you'll still be a mess. We'll all be a mess. We'll really be a mess when we're old because our bodies will be a mess. If our goal is just to be a compassionate mess, or our goal is simply to hold the whole 
messiness of human life with warmth, with love, with connectedness, with presence, with joy, then mm -hmm. you've achieved your goal. And again, it's right. kind of going back to this thing is it's not contingent on circumstances. It's not what is happening, it's how you, are you relating to what's happening? And that's what mm -hmm. self-compassion is. You're relating to pain with compassion. And by the way, you know, life's not all pain. If you look at kindness, mindfulness, and connectedness about good things, it manifests as like appreciation and gratitude. Compassion, just by definition, is aimed at suffering, just by that's the Latin root of the word. But really those three components, appreciation and gratitude and joy, as well as healing kindness and kind of tenderness and that almost like more sorrowful compassion. Oh, it's like, yay, and oh, at the same time and everything in between. <laughs> I love that you bring that up, Kristen, because I think there are so many people out there that can relate to the idea that the the celebration or the experiences of good can bring anxiety or guilt. You can almost feel it sometimes. I can relate to that. Sometimes if I feel, oh, just I have so much, like if I take it, I could feel it. And then I almost feel anxious with it when well, I'm absolutely feeling it. scary because first of all, yeah. I might start getting attached to this. And then what if I don't keep right. acting this way? And that's because we're identifying it. We're trying to say, I'm only okay. You know, my worth comes from reaching the highs and not the lows. Your very best qualities, they're not what make you worthy either. You know, it's like your worth isn't because you have these good qualities, your worth is intrinsic. And right. you can celebrate your good qualities, you can shine as much as you're able to shine. And you've got these not so good qualities and the youthful challenges and none of it's really our fault. Even the good mm -hmm. qualities, you know, we, we can't really take credit for them. I mean, it's like the, the coming together of your genes and your culture and the books you read of the people you knew in grade school and your teachers and, you know, your physiology and all these things. Your race, come together yeah. Mm -hmm. In every moment. Mm -hmm. And then you start, you start bringing off to the spiritual again, because then you start realizing that we aren't so separate and individual as we think we are. You know, it's not an accident that I came to self-compassion in my Buddhist practice. But the reason it's so useful to do that is because when you start taking the self a little less seriously, it also allows you to shine more. When we're identified with our good qualities, that's when it feels anxious because what if I lose it? Or what if I'm a narcissist? Or, but if it's just like just free flowing, my good right. qualities, my dark qualities, it's just happening. And we're just trying to relate as best we can, health and healing as much as we can, moment by moment. Yes, yeah, all good. <laughs> right. Rather than holding on to some identity of being yes. a, I am a good person or I am a bad, like yes. what you're talking about is like realizing that we're sort of transient in our life. Sometimes our good qualities are really shining and we can really live yes. in them. And can we celebrate them? But we can have a fear of that because we know we're going to lose them. But by and allowing you will, it, by the way, you we will. will. Exactly. You will. Because in five minutes from now, someone's going to say something to piss you off and you aren't going to, you're going to lose that shiny good quality, but it'll come back. But also your bad qualities, this, you probably shouldn't even call them good and bad, but the right, challenging right, right. qualities, you don't show them all the time either. We identify with the not so good qualities and we don't want to identify with the good qualities because we're afraid. At the same time, we all want to be special and above average. You can see it's like we're the compassionate mess. It gets messy in there. The more you open your heart, the more it all becomes workable. That's the thing. And it's also kind of funny as well. I mean, we're laughing about it. Isn't it true? Not that there isn't real tragedy. Of course there is. There's real pain and, you know, I'm not denying that. But self-compassion allows you to take yourself a little less seriously. 
women also have to be aware there may be consequences and you also have to be wise about it, right? So if you're going to lose your job, if you speak up, for instance, like, you know, it's not like you have mm-hmm. to speak up either. You have to be wise about what's safe for you. Some women are in a relationship where they may be in physical danger. I mean, you got to be, you really have to be wise. And but here's the thing, owning your no, owning your anger, how you express it. It may, you know, certain cultures, certain situations, you may not be able to express it like you would ideally like that. It's just reality. But at right. least you can own it on the inside. You right. know it's wrong. You know you've got a, every single right to be angry. And then you have to use your wisdom to figure out how do I express it in a way that's going to also be more useful, most help, useful, helpful, you know, et cetera. In my situation, right? The problem with gender role socialization is we don't own the anger. We think we mm-hmm. shouldn't be angry. We think there's something wrong with us. We don't see that it's wrong. We say, oh, that's just the way men are. Mm-hmm. You know, just think for years, you know, that, that's just, he's just kind of a creep. That's just the way men are. No, it's not okay. <laughs> you know, we, we have to see it, know it internally, own our anger, yes. own our truth, and then try to as skillfully as possible, find ways to express it in a way that aren't going to, you know, again, yeah, you don't want to lose your job. It's this great term I talked about in the book called gender judo, for instance, what women have to do at work. And it's totally unfair because men don't have to do it. But gender judo means you have to be a, an agentic, powerful woman to get ahead in business, but they don't like you if you're a strong, agentic woman. And that will limit you because they aren't going to raise you to the highest levels if they don't like you and they won't give you as much money. But if you don't ask for it, you aren't going to get as much money either. So we're really in a rock and a hard place. Mm-hmm. So gender judo means you, you're strong and agentic, but then you intentionally, oh, how are your kids? You, know, you, you, mm-hmm. in, you intentionally bring in a nurturing quality, the balance. Right the agentic quality, this is all unconscious. People whose unconscious is thinking, wow, she's really agentic. She must not be very nice. When you say, oh, how are your kids doing? Oh, I guess she is. Okay, then it's all right. And that so women face sense. less backlash who could intentionally combine the yin and the yang, the fierce and the tender. Well, and, and again, yeah, men don't have to do it. It really is like, I don't, sometimes I feel like I don't have time, but yeah, but, then, but it does work. So we have an option. <laughs> men can just be there. Agentic cells and doesn't hurt, at least in the workplace context, it doesn't hurt them. One of the things I like about the title of your book is you said that women can harness kindness to speak up yes. and claim the power and thrive. I love the judo and we have to. We, we think about how many relationships with men that we do have to sometimes placate the emotions, whether they're the more knowledgeable one. I mean, we all know that, right? Not for all men. I think there's a lot of men out there that can own their own vulnerability and own their own kindness. And we don't, but there are a lot of men that, that we do have to do a little judo to not step on the ego, where I think we have to do a lot less of that with men. But what I like about the title is that you're harnessing kindness to speak up and claim power as we're talking about this evolutionary transition that we've gone from Mm -hmm. where it was the way it was way back when, because we needed it that way. Women needed men to be able to be safe and men needed women in a tender role as we're evolving as people. Would it be true to say that our leadership roles now are going to be called into this process of needing kindness? Like maybe this is my fantasy. Maybe this is, but I feel like, men are going to be called into their own compassionate ways of finding 
their more kind, connecting space rather than just their agentic in order to be effective leaders. Like what we have now is leaders that are growing without that and it is creating chaos. It's not working. Yeah, I think if we're going to survive as a species, you know, the biggest one that will come with is, is global warming, right? You know, so that kind of exploit, take, 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 do, do, do. That's, that's not going to, you know, we may not be around to see if we can change or not, but yeah, no, I think so. I mean, I think that's where things are moving because men are harmed by it. So even yeah. though we're still in the patriarchy, in some ways, men aren't doing as well as women. They aren't going to college as often. They're less happy. They don't know their role anymore. And, and because they aren't, haven't been socialized to explore their inner worlds, they, they're kind of a little bit, a lot of men are just adrift. They aren't going to go to therapists and try to figure out what's going on. And, you know, they don't have the, the skills, the tools, the resources that compassion gives you. I see a lot more relationships struggling where women are becoming less satisfied with the agentic quality of men, like really ready for men that are going to tune into themselves, their own pain, and that you have to do that in order to tune into others, right? So it's like, right. if you can't tune into your own, and you can't hold your own self-compassion and awareness, your partner will feel a lot more like for the men out there, know that your partner might feel a lot more lonely than you realize. If you yeah. hold on to this agentic kind of experience, if I have to be the most powerful, and I don't tune into my softer, more vulnerable side, leads to less effective relationships, but also less effective leaders. The research suggests that you really do need both qualities integrated. So men, they aren't disliked if their fears about being tender, but they're, they're more effective leaders if they can integrate both. They don't dislike men who aren't both necessarily. You know what I mean? But they're more effective. So there's no backlash against a man who's fierce but not tender. That is actually such an important statement. So there's no overt backlash. People tend to like them, but they're not as effective leaders. They're yes. more effective if they can, especially now that things are starting to change and, you know, we're valuing diversity in the workplace, things like that. Yes. And some of the kind of old hierarchical ways of command and control aren't really working anymore. Women are not liked as much if they are really presenting their agentic side. We don't want women out there to say, hey, get agentic and blow off your warmth and kindness. By the way, some women do. A lot of women in the workplace, they outmail the men. You oh, know what I mean? Because to get ahead, they feel like they have, I can't express my feminine side because it's not valued in the workplace. And, and it's not, <laughs> you know? Right. And that's not healthy either. Right. They just cut that parts off of themselves, or maybe they were never nurtured in this way to have kindness and the, the more powerful nurturing side that is essential for us to live to an integrated happiness. All of us need both. That is just, just, you know, and I felt like I said that ad nauseum in the book and I probably people got sick of me saying it, but it's so can't be said often enough. We all I agree. Need both. Every moment we need both. It has to start with ourselves because society, mm -hmm. it may change. It may not. I don't know. Again, I don't even know if, who knows what's happening, what's going to happen, but every moment we can open to the fierceness, the tenderness. It's kind of like acceptance and change. You know, some people do talk about it, masculine and feminine, left brain, right brain. There's so many different ways of talking about this basic duality that needs to be integrated. That is a, a message out there that we can't echo enough, right? I'm sure people on our podcast also get tired of us talking about that, but we become yeah. evangelistic about it. Well, because you know it works. <laughs> It does. It, it does. Helps. 
I love the concept of fierceness because it isn't as easy as it sounds. And it, to think of it as a feminine quality is just BS. That's why I like to call it mama bear because fierceness, even though it's male, is actually a feminine quality. Mama oh, yeah. bear is a female. Look at, look right. at the Hindu goddesses, Kali, Durga, these fierce. It's actually a feminine energy. It's just culturally, it's been programmed out of us. Right. It's, it's okay for us to be fierce if we're nurturing other people children, which of course we don't want to give that up, but we want that fierceness in nurturing ourselves. But what I'm saying is it's also a feminine quality in reality. It's just not stereotypically considered a feminine quality, but fierceness is also fully a part of being female as well. We're not Mm -hmm. taking that from the male list of categories. It is very female to be fierce. Yeah. That's why I like the term mama bear. And I love having to say to the men in the audience, don't worry, you have an internal mama bear as well. Because usually, it's usually like we use the male metaphors and women That's just true. assume, does it apply to me too? Men have a mama bear, but the mama bear, that fierceness is actually, I think she really is the best metaphor because it is kind of integrated, you know, in a parent, yes. because you yes. love your child so much, that integration of the tender, the fierce is in that moment when someone's threatening your child, your heart's fully open at the same time that you will rip off someone's head if you have to. And I talk a lot about this in the book. Fierce compassion doesn't mean ripping off people's heads. It, it takes this very difficult thing of trying to separate the behavior and the person. My behavior right. may not be very good, even though I'm okay. Your behavior may not be good, but you're okay. You know, the fierceness is aimed towards stopping harmful behavior or harmful situations. Right. If mm-hmm. the fierceness starts attacking people as bad, well, then you're starting to undermine compassion and it's not compassion anymore because then you're just actually causing harm. <laughs> Fierceness is not using your anger as justification to act out with somebody that's created harm. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, because that's causing harm. The useful, very easy, what's, health, what's healthy anger, unhealthy anger? Good anger prevents harm. Bad anger causes harm. Right. Much mm-hmm. easier said than done, of course. <laughs> I can say that very easily, but I still lash out, you know, because my nervous system and all that. It's hard to do. But if you think about it conceptually, anger is a perfectly valid, very useful emotion. It suppresses the fear response. It focuses us. It allows us to be brave and courageous. It lets us know in other people that something's wrong. When it's aimed at preventing harm, it's a part of compassion. Anger is a part of compassion because compassion is about alleviating harm, alleviating suffering. It's easy to get lost. And once you start causing it, then you're no longer in the realm of compassion, you know, and it's you're, slip, you're kind it's of more slippery slope. You're yeah. more into like, uh, you're part sorry, of the problem. More, yeah, that, that makes yeah. sense. You're more into retribution, right? Like if but, you're, but, you know, I didn't come up with this, obviously look at all the great social justice movements, Gandhi, Martin right. King, you know, nonviolent resistance, all of it was like, they were angry mm-hmm. at the injustice. They were standing firm and resolute, but the whole thing was, if you make our oppressors the enemy, you're just perpetuating the cycle of violence. So we're going to stop the violence by not mm-hmm. hating people who are harming us, but we're still mm-hmm. going to stand up to them mm-hmm. and we can still be damn angry about it. We should be angry at harm. You know, Absolutely. if you aren't angry at all the injustice going on in the world today, then what, you know, what's wrong? <laughs> it's not okay, mm-hmm. but the people, and by the way, this you know, so both of us as a white woman, right? I've, I've had to try to explore this in terms of white privilege that you need to be able to own that just by your position of privilege, there's harm being caused. 
You don't have to take it personally. You don't have to hate yourself. You don't have to judge yourself. You have to be tender and compassionate to yourself, but you also have to be able to really open to the reality of the unequal social structure. And that, that's right. also the fierce and tender self-compassion, the tender self-compassion of, uh, wow, that really is hurts to own that. I'd really rather not, and a lot of people right. in our country would really rather not believe that racism exists in this country, you know? And that's that they're just trying to protect their egos or also their power. But I, well, I don't wanna to get too far off of this, but you can see where I'm going. We need the tender self-compassion to own the pain of that and to own the fact that, wow, yeah, there's unfairness and I've unfairly inherited privilege. Ouch, that hurts. I don't need to blame myself or judge myself, but I need to see clearly that the situation is causing harm. Mm-hmm. And then we need the fierce compassion to say, it's not enough to just acknowledge it. What are you going to do about it? One of my dreams is we, we have the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion that we could come up with a or maybe it's integrating with, you know, there's a lot of trainings now on understanding like rate unconscious bias and diversity trainings. I think of self-compassion isn't in there, not only for people who are victims of injustice, but also perpetrators. If we aren't able to hold the pain of it, to look at it, but also to say, I don't have to hate myself. If I hate myself, right. I'm not going to want to go there. If I think right. I am a bad, horrible racist, I'm not going to go there. But right. If I say, wow, I benefit from racism. Oh, that hurts. But it doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. Then that actually gives me the freedom to use the fierce compassion to see, well, what might I do differently to help end the injustice? There's just so many, so many places compassion can go. Race, right. but then gender, you know, inequality. I mean, I really think the fierce self-compassion, and that's partly what motivated me to write about it because of the social justice movements. It's not enough to sit on your cushion and say, you know, I'm okay. We're all okay. We're all God. We're all one as people being harmed. So no, I love how you're integrating. That was a very important point in your book when you were talking about the social justice and how integrated this is. And just as you say that the idea, and I think that's been so exploited in the last many, many years, our difficulty taking in the pain of our own privilege and I feel like, I mean, I obviously we're both a little tempted to get into politics, but, but I think that there's been so much exploitation of that in the sense that if we can't own our own privilege and the pain in having our privilege, and we can't take in the pain of it and acknowledge it without shame, but without blame, it's feeling bad and awareness. But if I dive into blame, I can't be relational with you and exactly. accept my own pain of my privilege and then connect with you as someone else in the world that needs why what we can do to make a difference the people who often shame others is i notice white people shaming other white people for their privilege or for maybe making a microaggression or something like that the second you get into shame and blame then you're actually preventing the process from unfolding because then people they get ego defensive and they can't think if they're full of shame and blame Again, the more we can aim this at the harm, we can call out the harm, we can call out the microaggression, we can call out, you know, the privilege, we can call all that out. But as people, we're all human beings doing the best we can. Right. We don't have to hate or blame anyone, including ourselves, especially ourselves, if we want to be Mm -hmm. able to make effective change. If that individual is trying to call something out in a very shameful way, it may be 
that they haven't done enough internal kind of self-compassionate look at their own shame for their own privilege. So instead of coping with that and the pain of their own, they can kind of place it out on other people to, to call out. No, I'm not the bad one. I'm, 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 I'm not the bad one because I'm calling you out. Yeah, exactly. And I've just noticed that, that pattern. There's this woman, Cindy Spears, who's part of our board, and she's an African-American woman professor, and she does a lot of diversity work. She is just so compassionate, mm-hmm. and it's so easy to hear her. You know, she's fierce. Yes. We don't want to mess with her. She's fierce. It's just so much more effective when no one is blamed or shamed. And it's like, we are all human beings doing the best we can. And here's the problem. What are we going to do yes. about it? You know, yes. it just, it's just a lot more effective. I don't know how we, we got there, but... That's interesting. How do we get here? (laughs) I don't know, but I'm so glad we did. And I think our listeners are going to be glad we did. But I think the idea of really holding the the fierceness has been so outlined here. And I love it because there's such an idea of, even when you put a title on something that sells self-compassion, it can be so misleading that what we're talking about is just, oh, just take care of your little self. But what you're talking about is so much more powerful is we have this saying, Stu and I are kind of focused on right now. And I can't remember who we heard it from recently. It's just simple, but it's care about somebody you don't know today. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it feels connected to this, like the idea of having self-compassion and then getting through that last step of I'm not alone in it allows us to then bring our care of other people more active in social justice rates and gender campaigns, et cetera. Like there's this way of finding care for yourself is the most integrated way to be able to be fiercely caring of others. Yeah. You're less self-focused. Ironically, you're more connected and you're more self-compassionate. Some of my Buddhist friends don't like the term self-compassion. You can just call it inner compassion. If you don't like the word self, (sighs) The, self, the word self's that. problem, call it inner compassion. You know what? Compassion is omnidirectional. It wouldn't have been as catchy if I had, but real, ask really what it is, inner compassion. You know what? I love that because okay. there is something that about the self that makes it sound like I'm only doing self-help. Yes. Where the inner compassion, and it's where our passion is right now, it is yeah. compassion for self, for others, and becoming more fierce and action-oriented. And there's something yeah. about that. that yeah. Inner and I, outer. Inner yes. and outer, self, other, a whole omnidirectional compassion. <laughs> That's what the Buddha taught. He taught 360 degree omnidirectional compassion for everyone, oh, all, right. all sentient beings. So, yeah, <laughs> including so, ourselves. <laughs> I love that. This has been so dynamic, and I really, really appreciate you coming on the show with us today. You're welcome. You're welcome. And- it's been fun. How could people find you if they were interested in learning more about self or inner compassion and doing some work about honing those skills? Where would they find you? It's so easy. Google self-compassion. I got in early, so you'll come up to my website, which is selfcompassion.org. So I've guided practices on there. I've got some stuff on fierce compassion, explaining what it is. I've got fierce practices. I've got tender practices. I have a self-compassion test that you can take to find out your level of self-compassion my TED talks on there um, and research. If you're a research nerd, I've got literally hundreds, probably thousands at this point of articles organized by category on my web. If you want to do a little dive into the research, um, so that's, oh, but, and it also links to the center for mindful self-compassion, which is like the training arm of what I do. It's a nonprofit. I found it with Chris Germer and you can take um, mindful self-compassion training online. Uh, I've also, we've also written a lot of books. You can 
take it in workbook format. So it's easy, more easy today than it ever has been before to get training and self-compassion if this is a skill you'd like to develop. And I hope it is one because it's a skill that is going to, to make the go, world go around in a whole different way is according to our beliefs. And again, I want to do a shout out for your new book, Fear, Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. And I want to do one thing. If you look at some reviews of your book, there's several by men. I was very happy to see that, that they had gotten it as a gift. I'm thinking of two. They'd gotten it a gift for their wives and they read it and they said how powerful it was for them. So I want to do a big shout out to men grab this book, read this book, and harness your own kindness to claim your power in a way that is going to be the most effective and caring. But I I think it's a wonderful place to go. So tender self-compassion, how men can harness tenderness to claim their power and thrive. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. (laughs) Anyway, all of the, all of the um, information that Dr. Neff just shared will be in our show notes so you can access a lot of it to her website and things like that. We'll have live links on our show notes. All right. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for joining Kristen. I appreciate it. You're welcome. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining. If you found this helpful, which I think you have, please take the time to send it on to somebody else that could gain some wisdom from Dr. Neff's experience. And thank you very much for all of our Patreon listeners out there who help support this program And we'll see you again. We'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.